Why did the Israeli government attack and close down seven civil society organizations in Ramallah last month on the basis that they are involved in terrorism? Was the aim of this counteroffensive more likely geared towards silencing criticism of the Israeli government? What motivates the Canadian government to continue its tacit approach to Israel's violations of human rights? How can Canadians refuse to support human rights defenders doing basic documentation, speaking up, and standing by people being criminalized? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we will be listening to a recent panel discussion discussing the role of Israelis shutting down several civil society organizations in the West Bank last month and of Ottawa's refusal to condemn these actions of Israel against defenders of human rights in Palestine. Participants in the discussion will be Sahar Fansis, General Director of a Human Rights Organization in Ramallah, Michael Link, former UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories, and Yavar Hamid, an Ontario lawyer, with Bianca Mujini as the moderator of the discussion. On this week's program, Defending Palestinian Civil Society, Understanding Canada's Role, a production of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 16, 2022. The program is funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Both essays focus on different topics, but neither focuses on the tree driver of increased economic inequality itself, which is fundamental to everything that they discuss. Its chief driver is their own and fellow billionaires' imperialism, and the resultant soaring taxpayer-funded military weapons manufacturers and extraction industries of profits that derive from the resulting unique advantages that these billionaires derive from the empire that the government, that they and their fellow billionaires control for their own special economic benefit. Only this structure empowers these billionaires to grab for themselves and their friends control over yet more of the world's resources. Whereas Melinda Gates mentions economic inequality as supposedly needing to be reduced in order to reduce gender inequality, something which also has biological sources, which her essay ignores as if they don't exist, even exist at all. And whereas Bill Gates equally falsely assumes that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was not a necessary defensive measure by Russia 
against these billionaires' obsession to gain control of Russia to make it yet another U.S. vassal nation. America's billionaires themselves collectively control the insatiable global hegemonic control-obsessed U.S. imperial government, which systematically is forcing up economic inequality throughout the entire world. That comes from the article, America's billionaires collectively control the hegemonic U.S. imperial government by Eric Zeus, posted September 14th. Though there was no evidence that Putin had instigated the Ukraine crisis, and indeed all the evidence indicated the opposite, the State Department peddled a propaganda theme to the credulous, more like actively complicit, mainstream U.S. news media about Putin having somehow orchestrated the situation in Ukraine so he could begin invading Europe. Former Secretary of State Clinton compared Putin to Adolf Hitler. It remains to be seen if Kazakhstan, with its sprawling frontier with Russia, will become a second front for the entirely insane effort to defeat Russia, assassinate Vladimir Putin, and break the nation into ethnically divided statelets controlled by the neoliberal bankster gang and its professional thieves, murderers, and hijackers of disfavored governments by way of NED color revolution and other means. We should take Vladimir Putin and Russian General Valery Zaluzhny seriously. If Russia faces an existential threat, as seems to be the endgame for the one-world elite, it will not hesitate to use nuclear weapons to defend itself. That comes from the article, NATO Opens Second Front in Effort to Bleed Russia Dry, by Kurt Nemo, posted September 14th. As energy prices continue to soar across Europe, with gas prices surging 26% on Monday after Russia stopped pumping via Nord Stream 1, the highly contentious fracking debate is now re-emerging on the continent, led by a new British Prime Minister with fossil fuels on her mind. The European Union, which no longer includes the UK, plans to replace two-thirds of Russian gas imports by the end of the year, though analysts warn that the bloc's best shot at replacing Russian gas imports will fall well short of the target. In 2021, the EU imported approximately 155 billion cubic meters, or BCM, of natural gas from Russia. Unfortunately, the bloc's proposed gas replacements by the end of 2022, which include LNG, or liquefied natural gas, diversification, renewables, heating, efficiency, pipeline diversification, biomethane, solar rooftops, and heat pumps, only amount to around 102 BCM annually, according to data from the EU Commission's RE Power EU. Opponents of fracking hold that Europe's shale gas potential is needed now more than ever, though Germany, France, the Netherlands, Scotland, and Bulgaria have all previously banned fracking. That comes from the article, Why Europe Won't Exploit Its Huge Gas Reserves, by Alex Kimani, posted September 15th, originally published on oilprice.com. 
is the author of Untold History of Canada series. This session is about the threat of a martial law today, but with an empowering spin. In detail, how the oligarchy created a controlled demolition of the financial system in 1929, imposed shock therapy onto the American people, and pushed eugenics and fascism as economic miracle solutions between 1930 to 1934. A level-headed analysis of Trump's presidency and his political efforts in light of the modern depopulation, deindustrialization campaign without demonizing or glorifying him. That was from the introduction posted under the headline video, The Threat of Martial Law, Corona Investigative Committee with Matthew Errett by Matthew Eric Kump and Corona Investigative Committee, posted September 15th, originally published on Corona Investigative Committee. Despite actively helping Ukraine with military and financial assistance, the Western Alliance would not allow Kiev to gain membership as this situation would create an obligation for all other members to send troops to fight Russia. Then, faced with the impossibility of joining the alliance, the Zelensky government established a document of guarantees to create conditions for cooperation between Kiev and NATO. The recently released document establishes the signing of the Kiev Security Pact, of which, among others, the U.S., Australia, the United Kingdom, Germany, Italy, Canada, Poland, and Turkey would be signatories. This would allow various NATO powers to act in an integrated manner with the Ukrainian defense minister, despite the fact that the country is not a real member of the alliance. It is still determined that other bilateral pacts must be concluded, seeking to reinforce a policy of collective security. That comes from the article, Kiev Resolute in Escalating the Conflict, by Lucas Lyros de Almeida, posted September 15th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Last month, after midnight on August 18th, according to the Israeli army, Israeli forces had raided the occupied northern West Bank city of Nablus, to secure the entry of Jewish settlers to the flashpoint site of Joseph's tomb east of Nablus. A gunfight broke out with Palestinian fighters as a response. One 20-year-old Wasim Nasser Khalifa, a refugee from the outskirts of Nablus, was killed. Three others were injured. Shortly after this incident, at dawn, a large Israeli army convoy broke into and raided the offices of seven civil society and human rights organizations in Ramallah. The premises were ransacked, equipment confiscated, and the doors were welded shut with steel. An Israeli military order was posted on them, declaring the organizations illegal. Six of these organizations had already been outlawed by Israel, and called terrorist organizations in October of last year, accused of ties to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. 
The October 2021 designation was widely condemned by international human rights groups and the international community as unjustified and baseless. The, second, the seven organizations include Ademir, Prison Support and Human Rights Association, Al-Haq Rights Group, the Union of Palestinian Women Committees, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, the Bizan Center for Research and Development, the Palestine Chapter of the Geneva-based Defense for Children International, and Union of Health Work Committees. It is reported that all these organizations conduct critical human rights work in the occupied West Bank, such as providing legal aid to detainees, documenting the human rights abuses by Israel, conducting local and international advocacy, and working with the International Criminal Court and the United Nations. These are the groups labeled terrorists by Israel. And while the Canadian government is expected to uphold the rights of human rights defenders abroad and at home, no evidence has been found or substantiated to justify the claims made by Israel. Yet, Ottawa has, of this date, not officially condemned the actions of their ally, Israel. This, lated, this latest outrage, perpetrated in the Middle East, was cause for the group Canadian Foreign Policy Institute in association to hold a discussion at the end of the month describing this attack and where Canada's outspokenness on human rights protection is somehow dependent on the country under consideration. The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute provides the Canadian people with more transparency on foreign policy in all its principal forms. It states on their website that it corrects the popular myth that Canada is a benevolent force on the world stage. Hence, the Global Research News Hour presents the discussion called Defending Palestinian Civil Society, Understanding Canada's Role, another talk on the media instrument Zoom produced by the CFPI. The guests on hand were Sahar Francis, director of Ramallah-based Adamir Prisoner Support, Michael Link, former UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories, and Yavar Yamid, an Ontario lawyer specializing in racial profiling, prisoner rights, and migrant protection, among others. Moderated for the discussion is Bianca Mugini, Director of the CFPI. Let's listen in right now. So for today's event, um, on August 18th, the Israeli military raided the offices of seven prominent Palestinian civil society organizations, destroying property, seizing files, welding the entrances to the offices shut. And for too long, Canada has been complicit uh, with Israel's abuses. Um, and this ranges from historic, um, substantial historic support for Zionism to the ongoing uh, backing of Israel that we see. Um, and so for background, you can uh, watch our talk, The Innumerable Ways Canada Supports Israeli Apartheid, which is on YouTube. Um, and for today's topic, uh, there is direct complicity, um, as Michael um, and Yavar and others will, uh, will detail. Ottawa refused to condemn uh, the earlier designation of six of the groups as terrorist organizations, which has emboldened Israel's most recent actions uh, by criminalizing much of Palestinian political life, uh, Canada's terrorist list legitimates um, Israel uh, by designating Palestinian groups, civil society groups, as terrorists. Um, there has been some good developments in Canada. There has been some opposition. On August 26th, uh, the NDP uh, leader, New Democrat Party leader, Jagmeet Singh, 
Jagmeet Singh uh, sent an email calling on the liberals to condemn the Israeli government's attacks on civil society in Israel and Palestine, including, including the recent designation of six Palestinian human rights groups as terrorists. And this was one of 13 demands um, that Singh made of the Trudeau government on Palestinian rights. And this, this represents, this truly rep represents a remarkable shift in his and in the party policy and, uh, and an important step forward for the Palestinian struggle in, uh, in Canada. So with that, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce our first speaker of the evening. Um, Sahar Francis is the general director of Ramallah-based Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, which has been targeted by the Israeli government for their work. Welcome, Sahar. Hello, good evening. Um, thank you a lot, Bianca and Karen, and I'm so delighted to see Michael and Yavar. Thanks for all the huge support you're offering us. Uh, actually, it's a long history. It didn't start just last year with the designation decision in October. The Israeli attack against Palestinian civil society takes different forms and they implement different measures since decades. Since the beginning of the occupation, actually, Israel used the uh, British security regulations and the military system, the military orders that they developed in order to illegalize and uh, declare different groups, not just uh, civil society organizations, humanitarian aid organizations, charitable organizations, student movements, political parties, unions, and all different groups that they were resisting the occupation and criticizing the occupation for the grave violations and the war crimes that they were committing systematically were targeted. And according to these Israeli uh, military orders and uh, uh, lists, there's more than 450 different entities between organizations and political parties and unions and student movements that they are declared illegal and specifically the attack on the uh, on the uh, uh, civil society increased since 2004 actually since the uh, uh, decision of the ICJ on the wall and the initiative made by the civil society on the PDS movement the boycott divestment and sanctions then we started to feel more and more attack and it all started with the attack and the smear campaign the distribution of false information against us uh, uh, by israeli right-wing organizations like ngo monitor like uh, uh, rigavim shurat hadin uh, and other uh, organi local organizations and as well uh, international Zionist organizations really connected to the Israeli government like UN Watch, UK Lawyers for Israel and other groups that they were uh, starting to distribute these reports about the work of the NGOs claiming that we are terrorist organizations and of course mostly it was based on information taken from the military courts files or the secret information from the security services because some of the workers in these organizations are connected to the Israeli security services and all this campaign failed because our donors our supporters were not affected and this is, was the aim 
to dry our resources. And actually, the Israeli government invented the uh, strategic affair ministry in the previous government in order to affect the work of the civil society, the, to silence the voices of the Palestinian activists. And they were attacking systematically the PDS and everyone that was active in the PDS, even in the international level using the anti-Semitism claim in, in, in uh, attacking all uh, supporters. Uh, Domir office was raided several times actually in this context. So in 2012, in 2019, they raided the office, they stole and confiscated 11 laptops and two cameras and uh, 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 files and they missed the uh, uh, content of the office. And they, of course, arrested several uh, employees from Domir in different periods. Currently, we have two of our colleagues, uh, the field researcher and the uh, lawyer from East Jerusalem. But our colleague, the lawyer as well, Salah Hamouri, since he has dual citizenship, his uh, uh, Jerusalem residency was revoked as well a month after the designation. And he was arrested on March under administrative detention. So the harassment against the organizations and the human rights defenders can take as well more than one uh, 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 way. Uh, it could be in imprisonment, uh, detention under administrative detention, canceling family unification procedures. Uh, 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 as in Salah's case, they also uh, uh, deport, they rejected his family unification process, they confiscated his ID and they uh, subjected him under arrest, they deported his wife back in the bus, they are not allowing her to visit him now while uh, he's in detention. They can ban travel, uh, uh, the human rights defenders like Shawan himself, the director of Al-Haq was banned travel for several uh, years before he was under arrest. Ubay, my colleague, the director of BSAM, he was banned travel lately in May by the Israeli uh, uh, authorities. Me, myself, I was banned from entering the United States when I wanted to attend the World Social Forum uh, uh, in Mexico. So there is lots of restrictions that we can face. And especially after the raid last Thursday, uh, in a Domir office, uh, uh, the damage wasn't uh, such serious like in the other uh, colleagues' offices. They just sealed the doors and it seems they installed something in our server and uh, 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 compromised our network. But uh, they hang this uh, closing order that forcing the closure of the office for indefinite uh, period. In other organizations, they literally took all the equipments like uh, and they confiscated everything that they can uh, they could take with uh, with them in the truck that they brought. Since then, we are expecting actually the worst because we know that they can now affect us more by attacking the uh, banks and you know that the banks in Palestine are so vulnerable. Uh, uh, they uh, are subjected for legal cases against them in the United States by the Israeli uh, government and by individuals even inside Israel. So they are uh, uh, worried and uh, uh, they will 
it could be the case that the Palestinian banks decides to freeze our accounts uh, and uh, uh, to stop uh, uh, working with us. Physically, the Israeli army can raid the banks themselves and uh, confiscate the money that we have in our accounts. They can arrest people, and they started with requesting some of the colleagues to show for interrogation, like in uh, Al-Haq case, Shawan refused to uh, attend the investigation, but other colleagues, they went just to receive a threatening message that you don't dare to open the organization, otherwise you will be uh, arrested. Why they are doing all this? We believe that uh, all this claim uh, of being uh, involved in terrorism, they themselves know that this is not accurate. And all the information, including the secret material, the secret dossier that they submitted to their close friends in the United States and in the different European countries that they support these organizations, we're confirming that this information is not sufficient. And me as a lawyer working with the military court system, and I know exactly the file that was submitted against other colleagues in the health work committees. I know the evidences that they have against most of the employees and the organization. And I know, and I'm sure that it's not sufficient evidences in order to charge all these seven organizations and the individuals working in these organizations and this is why they are taking such measures and uh, uh, unfortunately instead of canceling their decision because we were waiting for almost one year now for the pressure from the international uh, level because we believe that the israelis will not cancel the decision by themselves unless if there's more pressure from the international community they will not change their decision so the statement that was issued by the nine, the 10 European countries were very important, were very supportive, but still it's not enough. So condemnation and statements will not help us in uh, uh, sustaining our uh, uh, work and protecting ourselves and keep working in the urgent and important issues that we are covering. What Israel is, uh, trying to seek by affecting the Palestinian civil society actually is continuing with the annexation plan that they are already implementing on the ground. Part of us works with supporting farmers in area C, in confiscated land, in, 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 in areas where the Israelis are planning to annex and others are supporting women, children and, and uh, human rights in general. And the work on the international level versus the International Criminal Court, the work with the UN system trying to exhaust every channel that we have in order to seek accountability, this is what bothers them. The change in the discourse, in the uh, legal terminology that is used by international organizations, talking about apartheid more, about colonialist regime and so on, by amnesty, by human rights watch, by other organizations bothers them. This is why they are uh, 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 so keen in trying to silence us and shut us down. And this is 
I will end by really sending a clear message to all the activists around the world. It's time for action. We should send a very clear message to our governments, to our parliamentarians, that it's not enough anymore to condemn what the Israeli practices are, uh, uh, what, what Israel is doing on the daily basis. Just tomorrow in Palestine, in the 1st of September, 1,000 prisoners out of 4,500 currently in the Israeli prison are planning to start an open hunger strike against all the collective punishments and the violations that the prison authority is imposing. One of the detainees that he's already more than 170 days under hunger strike, Khalil Awaudi, the administrative detainee, just yesterday the Israeli High Court rejected his petition. So we are trying to exhaust all the different legal methods that we have and we are not succeeding because this occupation is becoming more and more and more beyond the occupation. It's abnormal. The, the situation that they are imposing is abnormal. And I'm sure that uh, uh, my Professor Michael will explain more in a very uh, 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 comprehensive legal way what I mean by saying that it's the time for actions and we cannot tolerate any more just soft diplomacy from the international uh, community. Thank you. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Thank you so much, Sahar. Um, thank you for that clear presentation, for sharing this information during such a difficult time as well for you, um, a time of such great difficulty. It's truly reprehensible uh, what has transpired. And um, you know, imploring the audience to um, heed your call for international solidarity and support. You know, there are 186 people now participating in today's event. Hello to everyone. You know, it's really great to see you. Please do find out how you can support Adamir um, from these terrible raids and ongoing attacks on their important work. Um, I look forward to hearing more from you, uh, Sahar, in the Q and A. Um, at the end with the audience um, and to the audience, you can find out mm -hmm. more about Adamir at uh, Adamir, A-D-D-A-M-E-E-R dot org. Um, we also uh, ask that you share our action alert um, to the foreign minister, Canadian foreign minister, calling on Canada to hold Israel accountable for its mistreatment of children in Palestine and for silencing those organizations um, like Adamir that advocate on their behalf. Um, so I'll be sharing a little bit more information about that uh, again later in the discussion. Um, thank you. Thank you again, Sahar. Um, so our next uh, panelist of the evening, of the evening slash afternoon, is Michael Link. Uh, Michael Link is a legal academic associate professor at the University of Western Ontario and the former United Nations Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Bianca. Um, thank you uh, to the uh, Canadian Foreign Policy Institute for inviting me. Uh, and for organizing this event. Um, and I want to say how extraordinarily proud I am to be on uh, the same panel as uh, Sahir. Uh, I've known her for many years, and I obviously got to know her very well uh, during my six years as Special Rapporteur. I'm 
Um, I have only the deepest admiration for her tenacity and for her leadership on human rights issues and what's happening to her and to the other uh, six organizations uh, in, in, uh, in Palestine uh, over the last number of years and particularly over the last number of months is a clear sign that, uh, of how effective they are. Um, if you weren't so effective, you wouldn't have such foot pushback coming from the uh, Israeli military uh, with respect to that. And it's up, up to the rest of us to try to ensure that that, that kind of um, human rights space is protected uh, for the uh, to be able to be uh, issue on the ground criticisms with respect to the uh, administration of the uh, of the Israeli occupation. Um, I also want to say how pleased I am to appear with uh, uh, Avara Hamid as well. Um, I think I'm right, Avar, is that you were once a student of mine at uh, the University of Ottawa uh, when I taught there about, was it three years ago, four years ago, you were a student, Avar? Uh, okay, something like that. Um, so a, a great pleasure to see you again, and I followed your career from, uh, from afar. Before I begin to discuss uh, Canada today, particularly with respect to the uh, attacks against the uh, Palestinian human rights organizations, can I just give a very brief a uh, history lesson with respect to Canada and Palestine, because today, the 31st of August, uh, is the 75th anniversary of the release of the um, uh, majority report by the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, which was released on the 31st of August, 1947. Uh, the majority plan uh, advocated the partition of Palestine into a Jewish state and uh, a Palestinian Arab state and the internationalization of, uh, uh, of Jerusalem. And um, I, I make this connection both because it is the anniversary, but also uh, because it set in motion uh, the partition resolution that was passed three months later by the um, uh, by the UN General Assembly, Resolution 181, which then led to the creation of the State of uh, Israel and the uh, dispossession of the Palestinians, uh, including 750,000 Palestinians who were forced into exile and not, not allowed to return back. Why am I giving you this brief history lesson? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, um, Ivan Rand, who was a Supreme Court uh, of Canada justice at that uh, at that time, um, was um, one of the members of the 11-member uh, UNSCOP committee, and he was one of the strongest advocates for the partition plan to go through. And he and uh, Lester Pearson, who at that time was the Under Secretary of State for Foreign, for for External Affairs in Canada, were the two strongest voices in Canada. Uh, for the partition of, uh, of Palestine, and much, I think, can be laid on their laps for what uh, what, what has occurred uh, uh, afterwards. Um, the partition plan was, and I, I'm looking at this through re research that I've been doing, was called by The Economist magazine, a very conservative magazine, in its report on the UNSCOP report in, in uh, early September 1947 as both unjust and, uh, and unworkable. Uh, because it wound up giving a third of the population, the, the settler immigrant population, uh, almost uh, two thirds of the land of Palestine, both of its ports, almost all of its industries, um, and, uh, and almost all of its uh, citrus industry as well. Um, we know that then from the resolution in 1947, led to the war in, 19, uh, in 1948. One thing I would say is that the partition of a, of a country today um, where it's against the fervent wishes of its majority indigenous population and, uh, and in order to benefit a settler population would never occur today. What happened in the United Nations 75 years ago, 1947, was in large part because the UN made up then of only 57 countries was largely made up of European countries, white settler colonial states, 
like Canada or the United States or Australia or New Zealand or South Africa um, and Latin American states, which at those times ruled by uh, Spanish descendant uh, colonial elites. It was a much different UN then than it is now, and it could never happen, uh, I believe, today. Um, the second thing I, I want to be able to say in turning to uh, the topic for today is the stance uh, of, uh, of Canada towards the uh, uh, Israel-Palestine uh, issue. And, you know, when I, I looked uh, the other day in preparation for uh, this conversation, and I noticed on the uh, website of uh, Global Affairs Canada that it has as one of its lead uh, pages a strong statement with respect to human rights defenders. Uh, it says that Canada Canadians expect their governments to help build respect for human rights at home and around the world. And it offers guidelines on a how-to guide for supporting human rights defenders, as well as a clear statement on Canada's commitment for promoting all human rights. Um, and they go on to define who a human rights defender is. They talk about how Canada is, is protecting uh, human rights defenders internationally uh, through bilateral and multilateral engagement. After I was done with that, I then looked uh, to see what Canada had said with respect to the designation of the, um, of the six, later seven Palestinian organizations as terrorist organizations, beginning with the formal designation that occurred late last October of 2021. And I, the only issues, the only times I could find any statements is where the foreign minister would say either in a statement or in the House of Commons, that, uh, that Canada is uh, carefully reviewing the information and uh, is uh, paying attention to what um, its, uh, its allies are doing. Um, I could find nothing where it's actually come out to condemn uh, the designation of these organizations as a terrorist organization, notwithstanding its statements that uh, Canada believes in defending uh, human rights space for defenders to be able to articulate rights and, uh, and freedoms uh, for all. Uh, shortly after the raid uh, earlier on this month uh, in Ramallah uh, and near Ramallah on this on the organizations and the and the ongoing designation of these organizations as both terrorist and illegal, um, the European Union um, representative uh, to the Palestinian Authority uh, led an important delegation of like-minded countries uh, to the offices of El Haq, where it met with all of these uh, these organizations. Uh, they were made up largely of European countries, but also of like-minded countries outside of Europe, uh, including Mexico and, and Chile. Canada has a representative's office in, uh, in Ramallah. Canada was not among the uh, countries that, uh, that attended this meeting, and I'm unaware of any statement made uh, since then by our foreign affairs minister uh, that, is, that is all critical uh, of this. And this perhaps goes to a, a deeper issue with respect to human rights defenders. Back in the uh, early 1990s, Canada uh, did defend and Canada did fund uh, human rights organizations in, um, uh, in Palestine, uh, including Al Haq. Um, that funding ended uh, in the, uh, I believe, in the early uh, in the early 2000s with the ascension of, of Stephen Harper to um, uh, to become the prime minister, and has never been uh, renewed since. There is humanitarian funding uh, to some organizations in Palestine, but nothing for the human rights uh, defenders organizations that are critical of the uh, of the Israeli occupation. Um, and it, to me, is it's it's perhaps consistent with Canada's recent policy. 
uh, and lack of action on this. When we look at what Canada said with respect to the release of the Trump plan in January 2020, Canada said, we are carefully um, examining the Trump plan and uh, we are consulting with our allies on that. It never did uh, criticize uh, the Trump plan's proposal for the annexation of, of much of the West Bank uh, to Israel. You know, the European Union found time to be able to criticize the Trump plan. Uh, Pope Francis was able to criticize the Trump plan. We heard nothing with respect uh, to this from, uh, uh, from Canada. Um, the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement um, uh, allows settlements in the illegal settlements uh, that are a war crime under Canadian legislation located in both East Jerusalem and in the West Bank um, to be treated as part of Israel for the purposes of, uh, of trade relations with Israel, which means that settlement products um, produced in these settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank can enter into Canada uh, tariff-free. Uh, other allies, um, such as South, uh, South Korea, for example, when they negotiated a free trade agreement with, um, uh, with Israel at the very same time, made sure that the free trade agreement only applied to the pre-67 boundaries of, uh, of Israel. Uh, but Canada wound up defending its particular um, um, uh, its particular stance with respect to that. At the United Nations General Assembly, Canada has voted only twice uh, in over 120 resolutions at the General Assembly since 2011 for resolutions in favor of, uh, of Palestine. Uh, and those two resolutions, both of which affirmed uh, Palestinian the right to Palestinian self-determination in 2019 and 2020, um, were, uh, were endorsed by Canada uh, as a means of uh, trying to secure a Security Council seat. Canada lost the vote in June of 2020 uh, for its bid for a two-year uh, appointment to the Security Council, largely, well, not largely, but significantly on the basis of the fact that it's had has such a dismal record on Israel and Palestine. The only letter that the, uh, that the Canadian ambassador to the UN at the time released to um, other uh, UN missions in New York, canvassing them for support uh, with respect to uh, uh, its bid for a Security Council seat, was to be able to um, uh, deflect criticism of its uh, policy towards Israel and uh, and Palestine, which it was unsuccessful for. So all of those, I think, you know, leads us to uh, a situation where you think you would think Canada. Uh, if it is uh, a champion of proclaiming human rights and defending uh, the human rights defenders, um, would have had something to say with respect to uh, what happened in the West Bank. It's got, uh, it listens to the West Bank because it has a representative office there. Uh, this was widely in the, in the press. Um, Canada knows uh, with respect to the, uh, the dismal human rights trends that are going on in um, uh, uh, in occupied Palestine, uh, and yet it's uh, maintained what I call its diplomatic um, laryngitis uh, with respect to any criticism of, uh, of Israel. So just if I can conclude, I just want to be able to say that this was an item as special rapporteur, and I was special rapporteur until the end of April of this, this year, where I released a number of statements and wrote a number of letters uh, in my capacity uh, to uh, both governments, but also released public statements where I was joined with it by a number of other uh, special rapporteurs in the UN uh, special procedures system. And what I what I pointed out was that, um, and let me just quote this, I said, the United Nations has been very clear that the drafting and application of anti-terrorism laws has to be rigorously consistent with international law and human rights protections, including the principles of legal certainty, necessity, 
proportionality, and the rule of law. Applying anti-terrorism laws to well-regarded human rights defenders and civil society organizations without persuasive evidence to substantiate these claims can only be understood as a politically motivated attempt by Israel to silence some of its most effective critics. If the international community is serious about its support for Palestinian self-determination and an end to the 55-year-old Israeli occupation, it must become both, both more uh, vocal and assertive in defending these organizations. I'm pleased we, we see this defense with respect to the uh, coming from uh, Europe and coming from like-minded nations. But you know, I ask myself, where is Canada? Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a great question. Where Where is Canada? Um, thank you for providing this broader context um, and also the important history. Um, there's so many contradictions when it comes to Canada, uh, Canada's record on, on Palestine. And I urge people to look um, at the article that Karen has shared called Canada's Contradictions on Palestine um, in Electronic Intifada. Uh, Michael, thank you for pointing out these double standards, the lack of support for Palestinian civil society from Canada, the lack of support um, for human rights defenders, and also the dismal voting record um, at the UN on Palestinian human rights. And thank you for all the work that you, you have been doing too um, and did as a special rapporteur. I want to remind everyone to take a moment um, to write to Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau and Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Um, the link is in the chat. Karen has shared that. And this is uh, this has already been um, uh, uh, sent by around 1,800 people. But please do add your voice to demand that um, the government of Canada pressure Israel to immediately rescind its designation of seven Palestinian human rights organizations as unlawful, and to urge the Prime Minister and uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs to denounce Israel for targeting these NGOs and for ordering the raid and closure of their offices. Um, we'll now be hearing from Yavar Hamid, um, who is a lawyer in Ontario with a focus on racial profiling, uh, lawful expression, equality rights, prisoner rights, and migrant protection. Welcome, Yavar. Uh, thank you so much, Bianca. Thank you to the Kane Foreign Policy Institute and to the fellow panelists. It's a great honor and privilege to be here with Sarah and uh, uh, Michael Link, um, setting the foundation for what is uh, an excellent encapsulation of the issue, but uh, it is such a, um, a you know a, a, a dismal moment that we need to be speaking on this topic and that we need to be raising awareness on what needs to be done on something that is so fundamental from a human rights perspective that uh, we need to not only stand up for human rights, but as uh, as Michael mentioned, for human rights defenders, human rights defenders who are working uh, in Palestine to do basic, basic things that we wouldn't um, give a second thought to in a Canadian context. Uh, so basic when we're talking about, uh, um, you know, the ability to document human rights abuses, violations, these things need to happen and we need to have people on the ground uh, uh, speaking out against these things, documenting these things and standing up for those who are being criminalized. Now. Uh, the focus of my comments is going to be on the Canadian context, and I want to talk about two things which sort of provide a bit of the, the context and some of the, the failings uh, from a Canadian perspective, and, and that is discussions that uh, are being had around uh, basically the rights, and, and this, is, this is so astonishing that we've been talking about this, but the right essentially to speak in favor 
of uh, Palestinian human rights in Canada, that that is a controversial issue. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a snapshot of some of the battles, challenges, and successes that we've been having in Canada. Uh, this is important, the fact that we in civil society need to be able to speak out about Palestinian human rights, generally speaking, and about the work that's being done on the ground, because this will normalize the fact that Palestinian human rights are human rights, and our government needs to take a position on them. The, the second thing that, that, that I'm going to be talking about is a case that I was involved in about eight years ago or, or so in respect of uh, criminalizing a uh, Canadian uh, NGO and humanitarian organization that was delivering uh, humanitarian uh, assistance um, in, uh, in, in Gaza, in, in Palestine, um, and uh, was deemed a terrorist entity in Canada. That's the Irfan Canada uh, organization, the International Relief Fund for the Afflicted and Needy, uh, which was deemed a terrorist organization in 2014. So with respect to just the very idea of speaking out against Israeli apartheid, speaking out against the violation of Palestinian rights that are happening right now at this very moment. Um, there are organizations such as uh, uh, B'nai B'rith, uh, other, other organizations that uh, support the, the state of Israel uh, unquestionably and uh, are attempting to limit uh, free discussion, uh, free expression, and also to tarnish the reputation of human rights defenders in a Canadian context. I want to give you two instances, and I think these are positive uh, examples in a Canadian uh, context where human rights uh, defenders uh, were uh, basically, um, uh, uh, they, they were uh, exonerated or uh, their ability to speak out was recognized by uh, Ontario and federal courts. Um, the, the one uh, example, uh, the first one is in, in 2019, the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, recognized for a human rights defender here in Canada, uh, Dimitri Lascaris, who was uh, uh, speaking out uh, against or, or, or rather in favor of um, uh, uh, Palestinians who were simply trying to uh, uh, retrieve the, the, the bodies of uh, their uh, children who had been killed by Israeli forces. Because he was speaking uh, about the importance of international human rights, because uh, he was speaking in favor of the rights of Palestinian parents to have access to their children who were extrajudicially killed, uh, B'nai B'rith referred to him uh, as a terrorist supporter. The Ontario Court of Appeal uh, found uh, that uh, uh, um, uh, Mr. Lascaris's uh, case against B'nai B'rith uh, was appropriately uh, a, a defamation case, and uh, that case uh, uh, eventually settled. But the important principle is that one can stand up in favor of Palestinian human rights in Canada uh, that is appropriate, that is recognized uh, by our courts. Another very important case uh, in respect of the Canadian uh, Union of Postal Workers uh, here in Canada that made uh, a statement standing in solidarity with uh, the, the Palestinian uh, workers, uh, uh, postal workers support uh, union and was also attacked uh, by, by B'nai B'rith. And in, in that case, uh, it, was, uh, it was found that um, uh, the statements made against uh, um, CUPW uh, 
that they were also in the vein of, of supporting uh, terrorism were, were inappropriate, and those were properly the subject for a, a civil defamation claim, despite the fact that that free expression, that support of Palestinian uh, human rights was, was sought to be shut down. So uh, my, my, my message there is that although organizations uh, affiliated with or in support of uh, the Israeli state are trying to silence uh, voices of uh, Palestinian uh, human rights and solidarity expression, uh, our courts do support the right to speak in favor of human rights here in Canada. Um, next, I want to turn to the criminalization of organizations that have supported humanitarian work in Palestine. In 2014, the International Relief Fund for the Afflicted and Needy, uh, IRFAN Canada, was deemed to be a terrorist entity. Uh, I represented that organization before the Federal Court of Appeal in an attempt to uh, have uh, its charitable status continued. That was unfortunately uh, an unsuccessful bid before the Federal Court of Appeal because in the course of, uh, of our um, submission to the Federal Court of Appeal back in 2014, they were put on a terrorist list. That is a, a confidential process that uh, essentially is what they call ex parte, is done behind closed doors. Uh, the basis for deeming uh, IRFAN Canada to be a terrorist entity was the fact that uh, it gave uh, material support to Hamas by giving $14.6 million uh, to humanitarian efforts, which somehow were deemed to be in support of Hamas. What I can tell you as a lawyer uh, for Irfan Canada uh, in their uh, charities appeal and also in the attempt to have them delisted uh, is that 13 million uh, of those funds were for medical supplies. Uh, things in the nature of dialysis machines, uh, you know, clearly things in kind that were uh, uh, humanitarian, uh, basic, uh, 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 you know, humanitarian devices, which were, were not for any other purpose but to support life. With respect to the other $1.6 million, uh, those funds were going to support um, uh, orphans, they were going to support uh, families for uh, basically humanitarian uh, subsistence, but the fact that they could not, the organization Airbank Canada could not exercise the, the due diligence and uh, minute control that um, uh, the Canada Revenue Agency expected of them, uh, that was deemed to be uh, inappropriate on the part of that organization. Now, the upshot of this is that that organization now deemed a terrorist entity uh, has been shut down as a source of um, humanitarian support for Gaza and Palestine generally. And this coincides with the notion that uh, deeming support of humanitarian effort, and I would say by extension human rights, is seen to be uh, inappropriate, uh, seen to be as funding of, of, uh, of terrorism. And that is uh, unfortunately uh, something that we have to, to, to deal with, we have to uh, work around that. But what I can say with respect to uh, uh, advocacy, expression of human rights, uh, as, as Michael Link, Link mentioned, there is no debate whatsoever that Canada is committed to uh, the protection of human rights defenders by virtue of Canada's own policies. Now, there is a policy known as the Voices at Risk policy which is something that is supposed to govern 
the activities of Global Affairs Canada. Uh, that uh, um, policy enshrines, uh, you know, what should be our government's commitments to organizations like Adamir, like Al-Haq, like the organizations who are working on the ground in Palestine. They fit verbatim the definition of human rights defenders. And according to our own policies, these are Government of Canada policies, there is a commitment that uh, our government must have, should have, and uh, there should be uh, an, an intensified effort to have a consistency in approach rather than criminalizing, rather than shutting down uh, you know, this advocate, uh, advocacy of, of human rights defense and Palestinian human rights. Uh, our civil society needs to speak out about applying values consistently when we talk about international human rights, when we talk about respect for human rights defenders, this is a black and white situation of violation of uh, the, the rights of organizations who are documenting and advancing uh, the, the importance of uh, uh, protection of international human rights and basic uh, uh, economic, social, and political rights uh, in, in Israel-Palestine. There should be no debate about this. And our Canadian policies provide the foundation of what civil society could and should be doing. Our right to express, our right to uh, lobby uh, our members of parliament and the prime minister is not something that is criminal. It, it, although organizations would attempt to shut that down, as I mentioned before, our courts have recognized that those attempts are, are inappropriate. And as a civil society, we have a right to uh, defend those interests. You just heard the talk, Defending Palestinian Civil Society, Understanding Canada's Role. This was a conversation recorded by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute and co-convened by Just Peace Advocates and featured Bianca Mugini, the director of the CFPI, as moderator. It took place September 1st and featured Sahar Francis, Michael Link, and Yavar Hamid. Thanks to the Institute for allowing this show to air on Global Research NewsHour. Next week, we will have a discussion with fellow independent media outlets talking about how and why their coverage of world events is being attacked and sabotaged by higher-ups as disinformation. Don't miss that. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.